Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book called In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool, Seth Tibbet tells the story of how, after 15 years of near-business failure, he created a safe haven at the annual Thanksgiving table for millions of vegetarians. It was written with Steve Robinson and is published by Diversion Books, and I'm very pleased to welcome Seth Tibbet to our show now. Hello. Good morning. Nice well, good to be morning here. in you. You're in Washington. You, huh? You're in <laughs> yeah, Washington. Right. It's afternoon here. Yeah, I'm up in uh, the Cascade Mountains, about an hour and a half uh, outside of Portland, Oregon. You describe yourself as a picky eater as a child, but not a vegetarian then. What turned you off about uh, the foods that you didn't like? Oh, my goodness. Where do I start? Uh, I was such a picky eater that I kind of uh, subsisted on, at one point, when I was about five, brown sugar butter sandwiches. And uh, that was not very nutritious, certainly. But, you know, um, just about all meats and vegetables were very unappealing. One of the dreaded holidays for me, actually, as a child was Thanksgiving, when we would go to my aunt and uncle's farm down in Palmyra, Virginia. Uh, And I just didn't like cranberry. I didn't like turkey. I didn't like anything. And my mom would slip me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches under the table to the horror of my aunt, who (laughs) was very offended that I wasn't eating everything on my plate. So it was a very uncomfortable uh, holiday for me then. And then... uh, so fast forward from that later on, it was after becoming a vegetarian in 1971, uh, it was also a rather uncomfortable holiday for other reasons. Now, you became a vegetarian after you read Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LaPay? Yeah, that was such a groundbreaking uh, book for me. You know, back in 1970s, there really wasn't a lot of information on the health aspects of a vegetarian diet. There wasn't anything about like how animals were treated. And Francis Moore LaPay was the first one to really bring out an environmental component about eating animals, which was that it was a very inefficient use of grain in a world that was needing to feed ever-growing amounts of people. And it, you know, was like she viewed animals as a machine, as it were, that you would put maybe 16 pounds of grain into a machine and you'd squirt out like a pound or less of protein. And as a naturalist, that seemed like a very poor efficiency ratio. And the more I thought about it, I was in school in Ohio at that point. And at Wittenberg University. Yeah, Wittenberg. Uh, but you were majoring yeah. in elementary education. That's right. I was an uh, elementary ed teacher, but I was more interested in teaching on the other side of the classroom walls. So I uh, dropped out of school for a while and became an intern as a uh, naturalist, and I learned that trade from Antioch University. And that just turned my life around, and I started noticing how much of Ohio, which used to be, you know, all trees, they used to say a squirrel could jump from Pennsylvania all the way to Indiana and never touch ground because it was so uh, forested. 
And when I looked around, I was like, gee, you know, now 80-something percent of the state is all uh, farmland. So I reasoned that if people, you know, adopted a vegetarian diet more, then there'd be more habitat for um, the wildlife creatures that I so loved and taught. So, But you weren't sort a of, vegan at that oh point. Oh, my goodness, no. I was, was veganism know, even something on, on the... Uh, <laughs> was something that was uh, had taken off yet? That's a great question. You know, the word vegan technically was invented in England in 1945, I believe, but it wasn't in the popular lexicon yet in the U.S. For instance, um, the first vegans that I actually ran into after becoming a, a vegetarian, and a very poor vegetarian, I might add. I mean, I wasn't eating meat or cheese, whatever. But no, I was eating cheese, but I was also eating a lot of like vanilla wafers and, you know, Oreo cookies, not much nutrition in there, but I wasn't eating meat. Um, so you obviously like sugar. I did like sugar and still do, by the way, uh, though I try and cut back on it. And in 1975, I had re found the writings of a hippie guru by the name of Stephen Gaskin, who was the spiritual leader of a commune in Summertown, Tennessee, about an hour south of Nashville. And he had bought, or the community had bought 1,600 acres of farmland in southern Tennessee, and they had a lot of soybeans. So they <clears throat> were experimenting around with different uh, soybean dishes that was that were not you know available in the supermarkets then like the supermarkets in the 1970s were nothing like the supermarket plant-based sections we see today there was not even you know if you wanted tofu you had to go to the natural food store and even then those were like dimly lit little places with warped uh, floorboards and <clears throat> just not really appetizing but uh, you know Stephen had these 1,200 hippies, and they were all what they called pure vegetarians, which meant they did not eat eggs, they did not eat cheese, they did not drink milk from animals. They would were subsisting on soy milk, tofu, and just pressure cooking soybeans. I mean, that was their major protein. So that was my first encounter with what today we would call veganism. But back then, as you point out, that that wasn't the word. It was you were a vegetarian or you were a pure vegetarian. And and is, didn't you learn how to make tempeh with fermented soybeans when you were on the on the commune? Well, I only uh, visited the commune for, uh, I visited twice for a total of about seven or eight days. But yeah, uh, I had read about this tempeh, you know, because in their books before that, uh, they had a cookbook that I still have, and I still has a great cookbook called The Farm Vegetarian Cookbook. And in that cookbook, there was a recipe for soy grit burgers. Now, soy grits are just soybeans that are ground up into little small pieces. And I would combine them with flour to hold them together, and I made these soy patties that they suggested. And they, they didn't taste great, but they digested worse. And so <laughs> I was like... But I was committed to trying to be, you know, a vegan or pure vegetarian at the time. And so I read about this tempeh, and they were, 
in their literature, they were saying, oh, people just go crazy for this tempeh because it tastes great and it digests even better. <laughs> so I was like, boy, I got to get me some of this. So uh, in 1977, in the summer, I got a job as a naturalist for the uh, TVA authority, and I was teaching high school kids about the outdoors, about five-hour drive from the farm. And on a weekend when the kids would go home, we were living in tents. I went to the farm. I got some of the tempeh starter. I brought it back to my little tent. Then the next week, I got some soybeans. I split them and uh, by hand. You know, you have to to make tempeh. You have to take the hull off of it because the hull is on the bean to prevent any kind of mold or bacteria or any fermentation from getting into the bean. And you, with tempeh, you you want to ferment the beans. Tempeh, by the way, comes from Indonesia, where it's the main protein source uh, and traditional food of Indonesia. For those who, and, of us who haven't eaten it, what does it taste like? You know, it has a nice mushroomy kind of flavor. And what's really different from tofu about tempeh is it has this really meat-like kind of texture. I mean, unlike, let's say, the Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger, which are trying to mimic meat, Tempeh has a delightful uh, taste, but it has this texture, like you can cut it uh, with a cheese slicer into like a millimeter, a, a very thin slice if you wanted to. But, you know, if, if you were going to shish kebab, you could cut it into small cubes and it would hold together, unlike tofu, which might fall into the fire pit. So uh, tempeh is a wonderful protein. It's, it's a superfood like... It's one of the foods that is the easiest for the uh, body to digest. What and about to make? To make, it's uh, not that hard. You know, brain surgery is not that hard if you know how to do it. But uh, I still make it at home. It takes about uh, 24 hours. It takes maybe three hours or four hours to cook the beans and dehull them and prepare them with the culture for incubation. And then overnight, like in 20 to 24 hours, the beans get uh, solidified into this cake by the mycelium or the roots of this um, culture that goes and it predigests the enzymes and makes them much more uh, digestible than soybeans. You know, if you try to cook soybeans on a stove in a pot, you could literally do it for days and they wouldn't become as um, digestible as tempeh is just by cooking it for one hour at a boil and then fermenting it overnight. So you started making it for friends and family around 1980 or so. When did you decide that you could also sell the tempeh? Was there much demand for it at the time? Uh, there was not much demand for it at the time. You know, um, tofu has been in this country since the early 1900s. In fact, the one of the first commercial tofu shops is in Portland, Oregon, and that's Oda Tofu, and it was founded in 1905 by a Japanese wow. couple. And so um, tofu was much more widely known, you know, because of its history in this country. And the other thing is tofu is found all over Asia, in particular China, Japan, Thailand, but 
tempeh is really pretty strictly combined to Indonesia unless there's an Indonesian person that has left mm -hmm. and gone to another country. So uh, in America at that time, the first Caucasian-run tempeh shop that was trying to make it was uh, opened in 1976 by a school teacher in Lincoln, Nebraska. And surprise, surprise, Lincoln, Nebraska didn't take too kindly <laughs> to the tempeh, so he didn't stay in business very long. But I came back from working as a naturalist again up in Alaska in the summer of 1980, and I found that uh, a lot of my environmental teaching jobs were now being cut because uh, Mr. Reagan had come into office and he didn't want any of these jobs that started with ENV. So um, I was trying to figure out what to do, and then I knew I had how to make tempeh. And so I came back down, and I had $7,500 saved up from my uh, six months in Alaska. Thank you, Jimmy Carter. And then I used $2,500 of that to buy pots and pans, and I started making tempeh in my local natural food co-op in Forest Grove, Oregon, which is half hour west of Portland. Now, you have often you're often described as a hippie entrepreneur. Is that how you saw yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had been to the farm, right? And, um, you know, I was a itinerant naturalist. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Portlandia, but, you I know, have. it's kind Talk of... to the, the creators. Oh, yeah, it's a great show. And uh, I was blazing the trail for Portlandia. You know, I was sleeping on couches and living in teepees and barns and doing, uh, you know, working about half the year, whatever I needed to make ends meet, and then traveling all around the United States and Central America during the winter. Um, so I was living what you'd call a hippie lifestyle. And I was, you know, inspired by the hippies because one of the things that I noticed about the hippies, and specifically the farm, is that, you know, in, when I was in college, the only place that I could buy granola was in the local head shop where I had a job where they were selling marijuana paraphernalia papers and pipes and things. And underneath the pipes, there was this little rainbow bag of granola. Well, five years later, I was walking through the same college town where I had studied, I went into the grocery store and there was a whole shelf of granola shelves. And I was like, oh, the hippies were right about granola. They're going to be right about tempeh too. So that was my uh, inspiration came from, you know, the hippies. There's actually a good book called Hippie Food. I don't know if you know that one by Jonathan Kaufman that traces a lot of the uh, hippie foods that made it out of hippiedom. And, you know, hippies were in some cases, uh, right about some things. And I think they were right about granola and tempeh, too. <laughs> uh, you're, I'm speaking about a book written by Seth Tibbet called In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Were you able to find uh, many vegetarian-friendly groceries and health food stores in Portland and along the West Coast at that time? 
Well, you know, Portland has always been a uh, kind of a mecca for progressive ideas like natural foods. And when I first opened up, there was about seven or eight uh, natural food stores and two or three restaurants that I was selling to. And I would make 100 pounds of tempeh at night in the Hope Co-op Cafe kitchen because I had shared the kitchen in the day with the people that were selling sandwiches in their deli. And I would drive and then, around. And then they I, would wait. And then they weren't using it after four o'clock. So correct. they rented so it I to you a, for $25 a month. Oh, yeah. That's 1980 wow. money, though, right? <laughs> so Okay, today, $75 a month now. Okay, yeah. So, but that was a, a great break. But, you know, I would make the tempeh and then I would freeze it and I'd drive my, I had a beat up three door. Dotson that was missing the driver door when I uh, bought it for $350. That was my tempeh delivery vehicle. <laughs> and I would drive this beat-up Dotson all around Portland to the stores and deliver the tempeh. Um, and that was how I got started. And um, it was not too long after doing that that I got a call from a natural food distributor who said, we want your tempeh, and we will need 1,000 pounds a week. And at that point, my total capacity was about two or 300 pounds a week. So I was like, yikes, I got to find a new place. So I set out looking around Portland and the area around Forest Grove, and, you know, I didn't have any money. Um, and I was grossing uh, maybe around, well, less than $1,000 a month then, so I didn't have a lot of resources. And the places I looked at were all needing a lot of work, including they were cheap rent, you know, that I could afford, but they were needing a lot of work. Like there was this one place I remember that was a basement uh, room under a speedometer shop, and every time... <laughs> They were calibrating the speedometers. Dead spider parts would fall down from the <laughs> ceiling. And I was like, you know, and it had one of those uh, doors that you see in the movies that come up through the street. I think you see them still in New York, you know, where uh, they're bringing stuff up from the basement. But there were no windows, and it was a pretty depressing place. So I looked for about six months, and I couldn't find a thing until I – went up to visit my friends in Trout Lake, Washington, and where I live today, outside of Portland. And I had read that in Indonesia, the best tempeh came from the mountains where the water was clean and the air was clean. And I was like, oh, I'd love to, I like living rural and this is great for tempeh. So let me find something. And I still couldn't find anything up here. So I was driving back to my home in Portland and at the end of this, and I was feeling like this looks like this dream isn't going to go anywhere. And then somebody told me, you know, you should drive by the school in the little town of Houston, Washington, uh, which is near Trout Lake, because that's been empty. And I stopped and I looked in the window of this kitchen and angels sang. It was mm -hmm. just like the perfect 
place that I'd been looking for. It was tiled floors with drains and stainless steel sinks that were already in there. And there was a gym and four classrooms. And I was like, I got to figure out a way to rent this because the school had a dusty old for sale sign on the side. So that was my uh, target. Now, you you report that you made $31,000 in your first nine years. Okay, let's say that's like fifty or 60000 today. But uh, this is all before the current giants of meatless foods, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods were even in business. So were you kind of almost a monopoly at the time? Um, you know, there was just starting to be a <clears throat> natural food movement and a plant-based foods movement. There, it was mainly, though, uh, tofu and tempeh. There really wasn't anything like a uh, burger until, you know, the first burgers that really made a splash, and this was in the 1980s, the mid-1980s, were actually tempeh burgers. And, you know, what you would do is you'd grow the tempeh into the shape of a burger and then dunk it in some soy sauce and garlic and uh, marinate it, and then you would vacuum pack it and send it out. And those were really the first burgers that I recall ever seeing that were not um, meat burgers. So, uh, and that was true until along came my friend Paul Winter, who started marketing the Garden Burger. And he was marketing that as a non-soy burger, and it had cheese, and it had egg, and it had walnuts and grains. It was really tasty, but it wasn't anything like a, a vegan burger. And nobody really was trying to at that point, mimic meat. You know, the Garden Burger wasn't trying to mimic meat. The Garden Burger was just trying to be a good-tasting burger, and he uh, really struck gold with it. And, you know, you had this burger. It was frozen. You've probably had Garden Burgers, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they, you would cook them in the toaster. Like, people didn't have microwaves every at that point in a lot of kitchens, so he was like, just pop it in the toaster. So it was very convenient, and um, but the tempeh burgers were very popular for a time then, and we actually still make a tempeh burger that we call a super burger that we sell into food service, and it's really delicious, but man, it's such a pain to make. It's really like, you know, we have to grow the beans into a burger shape over 24 hours. Meanwhile, the the... Beyond Burger and those types of burgers are so simple to make from a production standpoint, which is why there are so many of them now. I mean, there's, good God, there's probably 12 or 15 nationally marketed, quote-unquote, bleeding burgers, including one from the Tofurky Company that we just launched with Target and Walmart uh, a couple of months ago. Now, you calling your company Tofurky Company, but originally the name was Turtle Island Foods, named after a Native American legend. Did people pick up on that? Yes. So uh, when it was time to name the company, I, I did decided to name it Turtle Island after a book of poetry 
that I had read by Gary Snyder, mm-hmm. who said that there was a legend amongst the Modoc Indians in the Sierra Nevada, and these Native Americans believed that the earth was all water at one point, and there was no place for the land animals to live. So a giant turtle rose from the sea and offered its shell as a home for the land animals. Hence, North America was in their lexicon called Turtle Island. Hmm. So you and I both live, you're on maybe the head of the turtle and I'm on the tail, but we're, we're both live on Turtle Island. So that was the original thought then. And then as Tofurky grew, people started to identify us and know about the company more as uh, Tofurky than Turtle Island is Tofurky. So we changed the name. Now, part of the Seth Tibbet legend is something you referred to earlier. You lived in teepees, trailers, a 300-square-foot treehouse that you built for yourself. And uh, although you did have to pay a little bit of rent, right? You, it was, uh, you were renting three trees, including the one that you built the treehouse in for $25 a month. That, that figure seems to come back again and again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, and it was 1984. I was still living on 300 bucks a month and I needed a place to live. And even the market, the depressed market in Klickitat County, which is where I live and where I was making the tempeh, which is a county, by the way, the size of Rhode Island in physical area, but it has one stoplight and 25,000 people living in an area the size of Rhode Island. So and, uh, and You lived there for seven years until you got married in 1991 and moved into your wife's house. Uh, now, um, you, uh, you, you ran into some really interesting characters up there, including the Rajneeshis, who created so much controversy in northern Oregon. Uh, didn't that lead uh, to the locals giving you some bad looks? Yeah, it certainly did. Um, You know, in 1983, these two red-clad, the Rajneeshis always wore red wherever they went. And, you know, they were just starting to become very controversial in Oregon at that time. And they had a, their commune was about 100 miles from where I was, living and making tempeh. And back then, you know, there was no, I mean, I had a phone number, but there wasn't an answer machine on it, you know, like on Fridays for orders, I had to sit by my desk waiting for the phone to ring from my distributors and write down their orders. Um, And so it was, there was no real internet. So people either wrote a letter or called you and they couldn't find me. And so they came out searching and they, they drove over to the town and they walked into the cafe and all conversation stopped. And they were like, where does Seth Tibbet live? We're looking for him. And they were like, uh, you want them? And he's he, he go across the bridge to the old school. Uh, so yeah, that started the gossip train going. Um, 
but it also gave you some real business. You supplied a huge tempeh feast. This is before oh they God, took over yeah. the town of Antelope and renamed it. What was it? Rajneesh Puram? I think it was Rajneesh. They they uh, changed it just to the Santa yeah, Rajneesh. I did a show on that once. It was just, uh, uh, oh yeah, it was. It's a fascinating story. And you know what's interesting about that to me is two things. Yeah, they ordered two thousand pounds of tempeh, which at that point was you know a month's worth of production almost. So I had to really uh, work hard to produce it, but. And then taking it over there, I, I stayed for the feast, and they had this temporary kitchen with 20 woks in it, and mm. they cooked up this big surf fry. I think it was still the biggest um, tempeh feed ever in America, so 10,000 people ate it um, back then. But, you know, as time grew on with the Rajneesh and changing the name of Antelope to Rajneesh sure didn't help anything with the local uh, relations. What was interesting to me was comparing the farm, who was this commune of long-haired hippies in southern rural Tennessee, and the way that they treated their neighbors was really, really um, like positive because Stephen had said, you know, we've got to be good to our neighbors because when you have a commune that comes into an area, a rural area like this, it's like a heart transplant. And as long as you have good relations with the neighboring cells, the body is going to accept the transplant. But if you piss off the neighbors and the neighboring cells, the body will reject it. And his words turned out to be very prophetic, as the Rajneesh had horrible, horrible relationships with their neighbors mm -hmm. and really didn't um, try and appease them like the farm did. And, and they had really good relationships with the neighbors in probably as tough or maybe tougher conditions than the Rajneesh had. So oh. we've, we've been talking for a half hour now. We still haven't got to the Tofurky. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll find out how you wound up creating Tofurky. Tibbet, T-I-B-B-O-T-T, -T, his book, In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool, published by Diversion Books. This is London's located at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. 
You say that you had been trying successfully for several years to come up with an entree that could become a meatless option for vegetarians who are only able to eat the side dishes on Thanksgiving. And you you had what well, you did a stuffed pumpkin and you did a holiday roast. Why weren't they successes? Yeah, well, I hadn't done these commercially. I had only done these among friends. You know, for Thanksgiving in the 1970s and 80s, I would drive up to my friend's cabin in the mountains of the southern Oregon Cascades by Ashland, Oregon. And we would, that had no electricity. It just had a wood-burning stove. And at that point, you know, a lot of us were vegetarians. And so we tried various things at Thanksgiving. Um, one of them, yeah, as you referenced, was a stuffed pumpkin that kind of collapsed in the oven and really didn't have the, uh, you know, the magic of kind of this Thanksgiving feast to it. It was more of a side dish, I guess. And then there was like a gluten roast that you really couldn't cut with a chainsaw. I mean, it was, <laughs> we worked all day on it. And I mean, I swear this thing was awful and inedible. And so I, those were like two of the famous um, failures that always come up and people remind me. Uh, that were at those Thanksgivings. Um, so, you know, the the options for vegetarians back in the 80s were really a lot of vegetarians would slide back into Turkey because they were trying to be nice to their families and, you know, make them feel honored, I guess. Uh, or they were just picking away at the side dishes and kind of you know, getting a lot of uh, snide remarks and jokes and ha-ha, you know, there you are picking her way there. And then, you know, cooks, too, that even wanted to welcome vegetarians to their table. They didn't know what to do. So a lot of them would do something like a vegetarian lasagna. Well, that's great. I love a good lasagna, but it really isn't, you know, Thanksgiving. And what I noticed was that this problem was bigger than me. And one of the hints that I saw was I was always buying the Oregonian newspaper and reading the comics on Sundays. I would read the Sunday comics to my small son, who was three in 1995. And what I noticed was every year, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, there was always one or two or more comics that poked fun at vegetarians and they would say things like do you want white tofu or dark tofu <laughs> uh and ha ha you know it was always given the vegetarian the needle right and so i was looking for something and i was trying to think how could we produce something and i thought about you know injecting getting a plastic mold and sticking tempeh beans in there and molding like a big turkey or like object. Um, but then I was driving around Portland delivering my tempeh, and I came into the kitchen of one of my customers, Hans Robel, who with his wife, Rhonda, uh, had the higher taste sandwich shop. And they had fabulous salads and sandwiches that they would sell all over Portland, including a tempeh sandwich. 
And so I came in there one day and I said, Hans, what are you making? And he said, I'm making a stuffed holiday tofu roast. And I am going to sell these with a tub of gravy for forty nine ninety five to wow. Uh, yeah, wow. That was a lot of money even at that time. Oh, my. It certainly was. And I was, like, floored, A, by the price, but I was also, you know, intrigued because Hans is such a great cook. I knew it would be good. So I bought one, and I took it home, and it was great. And I was like, Hans, this is something that we should really think about going into business because at that point, Point. My wife, Sue, had been working on a burger for us. She's a great cook. And she had this one burger that really didn't taste like a burger. It had cranberries and sage, and it tasted like Thanksgiving. And I was like, Hans, we can make these burgers in the shape of drumsticks. You make the roast and the gravy, and then we'll put it in a box, and we'll call it tofurkey, and we'll sell it all over Portland, because Hans was just selling in Portland, but I had, at that point, connections all up and down the West Coast. And Hans and other people uh, were not, they were very skeptical of the name Tofurky, which, by the way, I didn't invent. You can find references to Tofurky all the way back to the late 1970s or early 80s. In fact, in 1981, when I was delivering my tempeh all over Portland, there was this uh, tofurkey sandwich, which was baked tofu with a kind of turkey-ish, <laughs> I wouldn't, you, you know, call it exactly turkey, but they called it tofurkey sandwich, and I would eat it for lunch. So, so you had to get permission from them to use the name? I actually did call up the sandwich shop, and I said, hey, you know, because at that point they hadn't been using the name for years, it only was lasted for uh, a year or two. I guess it wasn't a big seller. I don't know. And they said, no, we're through with that. We Go ahead, you know, do it. So I was like, great. And I went to a trademark lawyer and said, is this trademarkable? And he said, great name. Like, this can be trademarked. So uh, I trademarked the name, and we launched it over the – objections of many savvy people who thought it was too silly or whatever but what, what I, about that packaging point, what about packaging because that that often sells a product that people oh my god with. it was horrid it was like a white plain box that you know i just had bought from a box maker and we had a black and white computer generated label that we slapped on there. And I mean, no photos, no much of anything other than the ingredients and the weight. And maybe there was some cooking instructions on there, but it was um, really, really poor packaging. And the product, you know, it was interesting about it. So we, we started producing these tofurkeys. And at that point, the Wave customers got in touch with companies was either by phoning on the 800 number so they didn't have to pay like a dollar a minute or whatever it was to call long distance, or they wrote you letters. So we put self-addressed stamped envelopes in all of these Tofurkey's <laughs> uh, postcards, and we sent out 
500 at Thanksgiving. And with comment after, cards. Yeah, there were comment cards. Did you like it? What did you like? How was the texture? Was the taste? What would you do differently? You know, and when we started after Thanksgiving, getting all of these cards back, I was like, oh, my God, we are on to something. People love this product in a way that no other product, you know, I'd been in business 15 years and I'd had successes and failures with Tempeh uh, products, but never anything like this. And we were on uh, a couple of TV stations came out, you know, where people were doing demos or selling the Tofurky and they were um, just, it was an easy sell to the press um, because nobody thought that somebody would be so stupid to put out a tofu turkey. In fact, November 27, 1995, Thanksgiving, the day that I sent out, you know, that was the, the first Thanksgiving I sold tofurkeys, the New Yorker had a full-page cartoon that was mocking a tofu turkey, and it was called Hard Sculpted Tofurkey Drumsticks and Inedible you know, tofu, turkey, this and that. And um, I still have a copy of that cartoon, which was pretty much, you know, in line with how people thought about tofu turkeys as evidenced by the comic strips too. So, uh, but when we started getting this back from the customer, they were like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I don't feel like a second-class citizen anymore at Thanksgiving. I've been waiting 20 years for this product, and on and on and on. The only well, negative comments were, you know, the texture kind of could be better because when you freeze tofu, it really becomes spongy. Like Hans had been selling his refrigerated, and they were great. But when you froze them, which I had to do to sell them up to Seattle and down to California, not so much. And so the first ones, the concept was there, but the recipe really wasn't dialed in yet. Was it important to you that you weren't trying to replicate the taste of meat? Uh, because tofurkey really tastes more like tofu with added seasonings, like onion, garlic, and rosemary extract. It's not like the... Uh, the kinds of things that Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are trying to create? Um, yes and no, you know. I mean, I I think, you know, taste is subjective. And at the very first Tofurkeys, yeah, they were not really going after um, turkey. But, you know, turkey is a very, it's one of these kind of subtle tastes. So the more subtle the taste is, kind of the harder it is to knock off. Like chicken and turkey both, I think, are um, subtler than, for instance, bacon. Bacon is kind of an easy one to knock off because you've got smoke, you've got sweet, you've got the hamminess. You know, it's, it's a lot bolder flavor than the more uh, subtle flavors of turkey or, you know, gamey. But... Um, after a couple of years, you know, we refined the recipe um, and, um, you know, people really liked the taste and texture, which, you know, never was going to be like to a meat eater. Like, it's a good point you bring up, like the Impossible Burger, 
you know, people go, my God, if you hadn't told me this was meat, wasn't meat, I would be like, whoa, Mm -hmm. Uh, I would have been fooled. But with the tofurkey, no meat eater would generally go, what was that? Was I eating meat or was I eating a plant-based thing? But they, but the comment would come back, man, you know, this is really a good taste. I like this. I like the texture and it's very satisfying me. I could do this. Did people complain about the price? I mean, you were charging $30 a loaf in the, at that time. Is that why you only sold 500 loaves for that first Thanksgiving? Um, yes and no. It was a lot more expensive than a real turkey. Yeah, but, you know, yes and no, because that was a lot of food. Um, you know, when you compare it, and it was a pre-cooked tofu roast, so you just had to heat it. You know, a turkey... Uh, is a long process. It has a lot of bones and everything. But when you compared the price per ounce to a already prepared, like, say, turkey roll, you know, where the turkey and the stuffing is all there and all you do is heat it, it wasn't so out of line with that. And when you looked at the cost per ounce of the tofurkey, which was, you know, five pounds of product, um, versus a 10-ounce, uh, say, Boca burger or garden burger that had four patties, the cost per ounce was actually very similar. So the sticker shock was out there uh, when you saw that, but this was eight people's food at that first point, mm-hmm. you know, before we realized that the the bigger market was, you know, one or two people. It wasn't eight people sitting around and having this vegetarian feast. It was, I'm going to go to grandma's house and I need something to serve there. So we made the meal smaller uh, a little bit and cheaper as we scaled up. But, you know, when you, when you try a new, anything that's new on the market, people are going to spend whatever, you know, it used to be a thousand dollars for a DVD or, you know, a VCR and, and they cheapen up over time. So, yeah. So you've sold over 5 million in the 25 years since. Yes, we uh, have. And when uh, when did you uh, go national and, uh, and and even global? How, how long before you were able to do that? Well, national really ramped up pretty quickly, you know, thanks to a lot of the TV coverage we got. You know, the second year, I think we were on uh, – Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning, and then uh, the Tonight Show, like we had Christina Applegate was dragging it on to the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and the Today Show did a spot. And so stores that we had never been able to crack out on the East Coast started demanding their distributors to carry Tofurky. So it was in 1996-97 that we started selling to distributors nationally, but it was in 1996 we um, bought the well we, we applied for and got the 800 number 888 Tofurky, mm-hmm. and we sold um, several pallets of these to places all over the country via FedEx and. That again was like you know with FedEx shipping it was around fifty bucks 
before this, but, um, you know, they sold pretty well. But uh, do you know the story of why there's no E in Tofurky? No, I don't. But I, uh, I, I have to tell you, when I first started typing it, I put that E in and I had to tell myself to take it out. I know it. It's like even to this day, you know, it's one of those things. If I had a nickel for every T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y reference, uh, I'd be living next to Bill Gates. But uh, you're not doing wanted... that badly. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm fine. Uh, rags to better rags, right? But uh, it's really a factor of I wanted the 800 number or 888 number, the toll-free number, T-O-F-U-R-K-Y, because there are seven letters there. T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y was uh, eight letters, and a phone number is seven letters. So that was the initial reasoning behind leaving out the E, but it also differentiated us from the more generic EY, you know, because there was that product uh, that had been made before, and a couple other small people maybe had done it too. But uh, I got the number, and I said, this is going to be great. We're going to get all these calls to the 800 number because now toll-free people will be able to talk to us. But that year, the phone hardly rang uh, anymore, and I was really uh, quizzed by that because it had been on TV and it had been on uh all the boxes and everything. And, you know, I thought we would have gotten more action from it. So then I was sitting at my desk uh, the week after Thanksgiving, and I was like, hmm, I wonder what happens if you call T-O-F-U-R-K-E, because mm -hmm. that would be the first seven letters in Tofurky-E-Y. And so I called that, and this woman answered the phone, and she was running a hair salon down in <laughs> Los Angeles, and she was like, you're uh, the guy that's call. made those damn tofu turkeys? <laughs> I've been getting so many calls for that. I didn't know what to do. I had to almost change my number. This is so sick. And I was just, you know, I knew she was upset, but she wanted to go on and on about it. So she did. I let her rant for five minutes. I offered to send her a tofurkey. And she was like, what do I want with one of your damn tofu turkeys? Just change that number. <laughs> Anyway, so, I, I've, you, your partnership with Hans Robel ended, but you continue to work with him on creating new products. Why did uh, why did it end? You were becoming well, such a success. We, you know, the recipes that we were using, like none of them were freezing, and they weren't freezable, and that was really his recipe in the the roast. And so then, what we needed to do in 1997 in order to scale up and in order to find a product that froze, we went to a whole nother uh, vendor that had the recipe because we were buying the, the tofu uh, product part from Hans who was making them. And so this new way was like a tofu slash seitan recipe. And, uh, the seitan, which, by the way, is made from vital wheat gluten, which is the wheat protein separated from the starch. And that has uh, a really meaty kind of texture, and it tears uh, just like meat and shreds nicely. So 
we combined those two, the tofu and the, the seitan recipe, but we licensed this recipe from this other uh, company. Now, we don't That's, have a lot more time, but I, I want to point out that you have 200 people working for you these days. Um, you uh, have uh, produced all sorts of other products, um, sausages and plant-based sausages and burgers and deli slices for Tofurky Burgers. Uh, you're, you're, you have a global brand that's worth over $100 million, and you sell your products in 27,000 stores worldwide. But I was wondering if you worry about um, the, the, the fact that although Thanksgiving is seven months away, the coronavirus may still affect sales this year. Well, you know, I'm worried about, uh, you know, everything. <laughs> you, you worry, but less and less. You know, right now um, there's a, a lot of demand for tofurkey and all plant-based foods. Is such a, it's like a jet stream right now. And whereas the holiday used to be everything that we were about, we lived and died by the holiday, you know, for years, it was like 40 or 50% of all revenue. But now, you know, we sell so much of the other products. And, you know, recently, I mean, like, for instance, in March, the last four weeks, we've uh, have a 36% increase. But uh, over last year, you know, so, um, a lot of it, though, is just the category, and, and some of these new players, you know, Beyond and Impossible are bringing a lot of attention to the category, and we like that. We want them to succeed because it's the tide that uh, floats all boats. But we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. Uh, my great thanks to Seth Tibbet, whose uh, book is In Search of the Wild Tofurkey, How a Business Misfit Pioneered plant-based foods before they were cool, published by Diversion Books. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Leonard, and uh, I, I really appreciate the time. And there's more information on the book at tofurkey.com slash book. Okay. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show page on Facebook and Twitter or to head over to our website, letitlocatedlarge.com, where you can find links to a free archive of past shows. We hope that you are staying safe throughout this pandemic and that you can join us for these hour-long escapes dealing with a wide range of looks at other aspects of the world at large every weekday from 1 to 2, although tomorrow we are being preempted as part of a day-long celebration of the legendary Pacifica archives. But we hope you can join us again on Wednesday when Frank Smythe will discuss his new book, The NRA, The Unauthorized History. We'll see you then. 